Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the best of Tennis Channel Inside in 2022 edition here on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. My name is Mitch Michaels, and I am delighted to bring you the best of all of our shows of Tennis Channel Inside in in this an exciting, exceptional 2022 year. We're going to be playing the clips of some of the best interviews, the best segments, and the funniest moments of the year, starting with Jen Brady, former Australian Open finalist, U.S. Open semifinalist. She stopped by the studio in February talk a little bit about what was going on in her career, the injuries she's trying to overcome, and a lot of love for her fellow UCLA Bruins. Here's Jen Brady now on the Best of Tennis Channel Insider. You know, it's tough to kind of look back. You're still, you know, an active athlete, but in the moment, did you feel that, like, something was taken from you, that it was, you know, you worked so hard to get to where you were, career high, all these nice things were happening, and then the injury bug hits? Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate, just... Just really bad timing, um, but it is what it is, and I think some things happen for a reason, and um, I've, I've been able to spend some time yeah. out here in L.A. because of it. I mean, obviously, I would rather be on court, but uh, yeah. uh, soon, you know, I'll be back out there soon, and I'll come back. So what types of stuff are you, like, this new downtime? Like, I know UCLA basketball games, doing TV work. Are you, like, knitting or some other hobby? Oh, my gosh. Surfing? No, I do not have <laughs> yeah. the patience for knitting. No. I wish I could be surfing. I would yeah. love to be surfing, hiking, biking, just living it up on the beach. Uh, but because of my injury, I can't do all of those things. So I've had a lot of downtime, just, like, chilling out. But, uh, yeah, being here at, at Tennis Channel this week, I've realized, okay, I belong on the tennis court this uh you know, the real world isn't really, I'm not ready for that okay. yet. Still, <laughs> still a lot of time to play on the tennis court, yeah. but it's nice to keep your options open. Um, is there like a tournament that you have some FOMO with, like you're missing out? Is there stops that you haven't been able to make on this run that you're like, man, I wish I could have gone to that event? Oh yeah. I love going to Australia. It's a favorite. <laughs> it's my personal favorite time <laughs> of the year. I yeah. love everything about it. The food scene, the, I mean, just playing tennis there. I love hot weather. So I thrive in the heat, yeah. and um, I also really enjoy the Middle East, the Dubai okay. Doha tour. So, really, really bummed to be missing that. Those draws are insane, right? Like, yeah. it might be the best draw of the year. Oh like, yeah, it's it's yeah. nuts. It's that yeah. and Stuttgart. You yeah, you see yeah. those, and the last direct acceptance is like forty in the world. So there's like top twelve matchups in the first round. Like yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to be a fan too. I mean, I'm sure you were taking in the tennis when. Nadal does his amazing thing, winning 21, and then Ashley Barty wins. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and you knew Ashley Barty before yeah. she was this Australian icon, before she's going to get her statue made up. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, she was always going to get one. She's like the Vegemite queen as well. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Playing with her, I mean, did you see something special? Like, I mean, you kind of alluded to it, but that this greatness could be unlocked. Playing with her, some doubles, and then seeing her before. Most definitely. I mean, she, first of all, she is like the coolest cat out there. She is like so calm, cool, collected. She is so chill. Her team is great. Everything about her, like I, Ashley Barty is like one of my favorite tennis players just because of how she is as a person. I wasn't going to, well, I'll bring this up in in all transparency. I was at a match in Indian Wells a couple years ago. 
I think you might know which one. There was oh, yeah. <laughs> Jen Brady versus yeah. Ashley Barty with, uh, I think Allie Risk was in your player's box. She was. I don't, I can't, honestly, Allie told me she was going to come and I was yeah. like, yeah, right. And then I saw her out there and I was actually absolutely shocked. It wasn't anything you did, honest opinion, not just saying that she was, that was, you know, her on her run. I think she won Miami that year and then French Open and then it just kind of took off. Yeah, most definitely. But also it wasn't my greatest <laughs> match. I was so nervous going into that. Jen Brady here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Uh, some more stuff to, to chat about with uh, with her. As we go forward, I mean, one of the other things that I liked was was a Wimbledon final or was a Australian mm. Open final more nervous, more nerve-wracking than the dance floor at Pagula's oh wedding? Oh, my. Uh, if Jess was here, she would tell you I definitely was not nervous on the dance floor. Okay. I found myself right. up on stage three times. It wasn't even my wedding. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely had myself a time. And, I mean, it was fun. There were other players there. Asia Muhammad, Taylor yeah. Townsend, Sam Crawford. Yeah, we, we, we definitely had a blast. And it was... Let's look, let's look an, at the crew. There you oh, go. Oh, yep. Here we go. Yep. It was epic. We... Yeah, completely sober in that picture, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I mean, yeah, the bit more North Carolina, it's like the largest estate, I think, like yeah. personal residency. Oh, yeah. Um, wedding looked great. I know Taylor's been on the air and talking about how an amazing time it was. Uh, but it is good to see the camaraderie factor. I mean, I, and I keep saying this, I mentioned it before, the American girls specifically, you're from an era that it's all kind of progressed together and you've each had different times making, you know, leaps and bounds and have stayed pretty friendly throughout. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, especially I've, I've grown up with Taylor. I've grown up with Asia. I mean, Jess, I didn't know when I was younger, but mm. you know, over the past couple of years, I've gotten to know her really well. So yeah, even all the other American players, all of us, we, we, I speak for myself here, but I'm like, genuinely happy to see them do well but i think also we see each other doing so well and then it just kind of fuels fuels each of us yeah and the and you know not just the the females like the ucla contingency i had the chance to speak with both mackie last year mackie mcdonald and then a couple weeks a couple months ago now uh garone yeah and they i mean they gush about you because it's like one of their own you know doing yeah. big things the ucla <laughs> thing uh those two guys specifically having to work so hard to get to where they are uh, they definitely have that like inspiration thing. They're like, Jen's great. We love her. But it's like, I want, I want what she has. Maybe a little envy yeah. too. Oh yeah. <laughs> Especially Mackie. Mackie is like, I want what you have, but more. He's, yeah. he is like, he, I think he's a little bit jealous, but, um, I mean, and he's going to hear that I said that. So <laughs> I, I hope it fuels him even more. Mackie was, uh, you know, he was another guy that every time it's like you watch him play and you watch him in individual matches, like this is a top 15 talent in the world. Like, oh, yeah. You know, sometimes the hatching off matches we recorded this week, bigger players, stronger, it's tough at times, but his, his all court game is incredible. Yeah. He's so fun to watch the way he moves around the court. He's versatile. He comes in, he has unbelievable touch. Yeah. He can, he can do everything. I felt bad about Marcos though, because he was saying how he never played a, you know, we were like, you know, your toughest opponent. And he's like, oh, I haven't played, you know, the big three. I'd love to. And then he gets Rafa first round. In, yeah. In Australia, oh, poor Marcos. Yeah. It's okay. He's, he has bigger quads than uh, Rafa. <laughs> <laughs> That's, there you go. See, uh, the summer of uh, 2021, you know, is when it, things started to kind of turn in one direction. But what was the Olympics experience like for you? Oh, wow. The crew. Yeah, that is one solid crew right there. That We had a hell of a time. We had a blast. I mean... Everybody there. It was. It, it, it was, was. Everybody it was there wanted to be there, and that's the thing I wanted Every to get to because you had to sacrifice to so there. much. Yeah. You take a break in the tennis season, and you go to to Japan where there's a lot of restrictions, and it's a commitment. You're not getting paid, but 
everybody there wanted to be there. A lot of good friends in that photo. Oh, uh, yeah. And unfortunately, we weren't staying in the village, but we were yeah. staying in a hotel. And we were definitely treating ourselves. We were eating Wagyu beef and uh, some good sushi every single night. So we definitely uh, enjoyed ourselves in Tokyo. We got one other. I mean, these guys. I mean, just yeah, like, these two clowns. <laughs> just, oh, I love know, these two. You know. Look at that fit. I mean, people were staring at us because we were so American. <laughs> really? And we were, oh, yeah. Like, look what I'm wearing. I, mean, I always my heard about socks, that. My yeah, <laughs> it's true. We're definitely it obnoxious, yeah. but, okay. but, but you know, it's it's, uh -huh. it's America. <laughs> Bill Gross is one of the outstanding rising broadcasters in the sport of tennis, a premier voice on social media as well. But it was our chat in February that makes the best of 2022 Tennis Channel Inside In for our discussion about Igas Fiantek before, well, before everything. Here's Gil Gross now on Igas Fiantek. Switching back to tennis, I do want to just get your thoughts quickly on uh, the return of Iga Swantek as like a legit contender. She wins. She gets that big title uh, in Dubai now. Just 20, 20 years of age still, hard to believe. But her hardcourt game looks immaculate. Like, you know, like it wasn't the major that she won. She won it on clay, but she beats Sabalenka. She beats Sakri for the first time in her career, and then she beats Contivate. So she went through that gauntlet, comes out on the other side, and I've just been impressed with her all-court, you know, variety of her game as well. I don't know why, like, I don't know that the discourse around Sviantek has been almost too, like, muted. Is anyone talking about her be, being, you know, a, a multiple major champion? I, I think the possibilities are massive for her. I think people maybe forget about her age um, for yeah. somehow. I don't somehow. know. I don't know exactly what happens, but anyway, I think the the net net is last year Sviatek was the only WTA player to make the round of sixteen at all four majors. She was unbelievably consistent. She did not have this explosive run uh, in in any big events, and that's fine. The consistency she showed was unbelievably impressive at her age. The Sabalenka win and the Contivate win last week those are the exactly the matches that she's been losing so it was amazing to see her win that because big hitters on a quick court she has been too defensive she's been overpowered and i love that she's transforming herself she's forcing herself to take uh to take initiative more on yeah. quicker surfaces to play more aggressive to take the ball earlier and it's taken her a little while to to believe i think in those situations but now now that she's starting to believe, we've seen what the score lines look like too. When when she beats players, when she's confident, it, it's scary. And I think that I think Sviantek is is on her way to number one in the world. That's uh, I mean I'm buying the stock too. By the way, I'm in. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, that Sabalenka win was eye opening because yeah. she was hitting right with her, if not overpowering her at times. And if that happens, I mean, watch out, tennis world. Watch out, tennis world, indeed. And now we talk to another women's tennis legend, Tracy Austin, a part of the TC family who joined me in March to talk about her cover story in Tennis Magazine, celebrating 50 years that Tracy's been involved in the game. But it was this story about her winning the Wimbledon Mixed Doubles title with her brother that makes the best of Tennis Channel Inside In 2022. You were kind of like patient zero of this Southern California pro tennis boom that we started seeing because you mentioned Sanfris, Lindsay Davenport, the names that followed after you and cite you as an inspiration. In looking at your career, one other thing I wanted to ask is where does that mixed doubles title with your brother John at Wimbledon rank on your on your accomplishments in tennis? 
Wow. That, that, that makes me emotional because Mitch, that, that was never even in the dreams. That wasn't even mm-hmm. part of something that I thought was possible. Uh, I played my, with my brother, John, the year before at Wimbledon, just because I wanted some extra matches on that weird, awkward, unique surface of, of grass, which was worse back in the day where the ball really didn't bounce. And we didn't do that well. And I said, John, I really, you know, I didn't enjoy that. The guy's hitting balls at me, you know, in mixed doubles. They said, let's just try it one more time. Let's play this year. I said, okay, we'll play one more time. And to get through all of those matches and you look at some of the names that we beat, it was interesting that so many of the top players were playing mixed doubles back then because you needed to play a lot of, you know, three events in order to to make some money. I was playing it just to try to get some extra matches. So for us to win matches every night, go back with most of our family there and sit over our dinner and talk about, you know, the break points that we were able to save and then come through and win the title with a sibling. It's very, very special with both of our parents there. It's uh, it's pretty special. One of the best additions to tennis channels broadcast team was Chris Eubanks, the current player from Georgia tech who had his breakthrough year in 2022, winning a main draw match at the U.S. Open. He joined Tennis Channel Inside In twice, but on the Best Of show, listen to him talk about his friendship with Naomi Osaka and how she surprised him by going to his Challenger event in Dallas. Last thing I have for you, what was it like to see your friend, budding friend, Naomi Osaka, at your match in Dallas? Oh, that was a blast, <laughs> man. That was a blast. I, I Honestly, I wasn't sure she was going to come. It just The schedule was just kind of aligned perfectly where boyfriend Corday was performing was originally supposed to perform earlier in the week I wasn't going to be able to go but ended up coming uh due to some weather delays ended up performing I believe that Saturday night and I knew she was in town I sent her a text I said hey I'm playing at SMU if you want to come kind of just throwing it out there and she goes okay what time so in my head I'm like what time okay I'm first up at 11 huh yeah she's like I go here. I don't want to put any pressure on you. What I'll do is I'll send you the ticket QR code, and if you want to come, you can. She's like, "All right, thanks." Didn't really hear anything else. So the morning of, I'm like, I warm up. I'm checking my phone. I'm like, "Gosh, she's probably not coming." Then I go, "Hey, like, are you?" She, I think she maybe messaged me. Are you still up at eleven? So at this point, I'm like, "Are you coming?" She's like, "Yeah." So I give her my coach's number. I said, "Hey, if you run into any problems, just call him." I tell my coach. I was like, "Naomi's coming." He's like, "Really?" I was like, "Yeah." I was like, "She has any issues? Please take care of it." So. She ends up coming to the match, and ironically enough, I think she got there maybe a few games in, and I saw her in the corner hiding, like kind of has this yeah, nice little yeah. big throw over her shoulders, bucket hat, glasses, and a mask. I knew it was her immediately. But a couple of the ushers were kind of talking to her in the corner. I wasn't sure if they were not allowing her to sit down or they recognized her and they wanted to have a conversation. So I'm sitting there, and I'm playing my match against J.J. Wolf, and and I'm not proud of it, but my mind is supposed to be on the match. I'm thinking, like, is, my, like, is she about to get hounded? Are these people going to whatever? Yeah. So I go to my – when we change sides, and I'm on the side where my coach is sitting, I said, homie's in the corner, like, make sure she's good. <laughs> I talked to her after the match. She goes, oh, yeah, they just wanted to talk. It was fine. Like, and then she came. <laughs> she sat in the, the box with my yeah. coach, started to get recognized a little bit towards the end. Yeah. People were kind of asking for pictures, but she took it like a champ. She's awesome, man. And that – honestly, that really meant the world to me. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad it was – it's something that – uh you know, obviously meant a lot to you to have her there, and it was cool. It was great. You Absolutely. guys have, have helped each other out a lot. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Alatom Janovic first joined Tennis Channel Insight in as a guest in 2021, and in that time she reached her career-high ranking and had another outstanding run at Wimbledon. She joined Tennis Channel Insight in to talk about the highs and lows of being a tennis professional, the moments of success at Wimbledon, and how she shared them with Chrissy Everett, her mentor, and just what went down with her dad and the hotel checkout situation. It's Alatom Janovic on the best of Tennis Channel Insight in. You've had quite the year yourself. Uh, in the time that we talked, you actually hit your career high ranking at number 38. You finished the year pretty strong, went into the Billie Jean King Cup, made the semifinals there for your native Australia. I should start with their 2021 season. How did that finish up for you after Wimbledon? Were you excited to keep playing tennis and then ultimately going into that Billie Jean King Cup experience? What was the end of 2021 like for you? Ooh, um, I don't know if you'd believe me if I said this, but looking back on my 2021 is just like it 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 isn't what you think like Mm -hmm. it was really tough for me I don't know why I just I I know I had my career high actually I hit my career high this year I think right so but I I had a great I mean one of my best slam results and it didn't hit me until this Wimbledon that I definitely didn't enjoy myself enough last year throughout the year I don't know I mean I do know why I you know, didn't have the same feeling I should have. I I think it's like a whole nother topic I'm not going to get into, but it just kind of clicked for me. Like I, I just need to be happy and and have fun. And that's when I kind of do my best in my career and and just life in general. So to answer your question, um, the Billie Jean King cup was amazing that I definitely loved that. You know, I finished my year on that high, even though we lost in the semis, I think it was still a pretty, pretty great result considering like I was sick the first I didn't even play and like the girls we beat Belgium which was amazing and we've had some you know nice times and and those are that's what I kind of cherish the most is is weeks like that where we all get together and it's not the usual you know lonely week in the year um so it was it was up and down, definitely. I mean, there were, don't get me wrong, right. there were some great memories, but it, was, um, it wasn't as smooth as I would have liked it to be. Well, tennis players, I think all from the ones I've talked to, they long to be team sport, being part of a community. So any chance that they get to play as part of a team, they love it, whether it's Olympics or Billie Jean King Cup. I also think, Isla, that I'm not surprised you gave me that answer, given that a few tennis players have said that directly, like getting to the point where they need to tennis-wise to get their ranking up and what you have to put in, it takes a lot out of you. And and I guess it's kind of one to expand on in the last year or so. Did you feel like at times that love of the game was being, not like challenged, but maybe tested is a better way to put it, how much you really loved what you have to do to be a successful tennis player? It was definitely tested mostly because, I, I mean, if you knew me as a kid, I – I was only happy when I was on a tennis court. Like that was my whole world revolved around tennis. And I truly like lived it, you know, it wasn't just, oh, I'm playing tennis and this is a routine for me. So when I kind of hit like maybe a little bit after COVID, 
I hit a few rough spots where I'm kind of like going to practice is just tougher. My motivation isn't there. And then even when I'm having good results, it just yeah. never seemed enough. And I, I was always like, why am I so tough on myself? And it didn't, at one point I was like, this isn't fair to me. I mean, I, I'm working so hard and I get the reward and I'm like, okay, what's next? Like I, mm -hmm. and I know these moments, like I, like now after I think um, the, the day after I lost my quarterfinals, I was sitting with my dad we were just having a coffee and I was like, like, that's it. Like it passed, you know, that yeah. moment was yesterday and now it's, it's gone. Like, and we kind of were like, yeah, like you, you have to enjoy the whole thing. It's not just the moment of that's lasting maybe 10 minutes, you know, right. it's the whole satisfaction of getting there, putting in the work and then even having, you know, setbacks and tough times in it. Then you have that one moment where it just kind of comes together and, and it's all, I guess, worth it. But that's where I kind of lost that love for even the tough times. And, and it overtook everything. So it took me a while even, you know, at this year. But right. I think I hit maybe one of my lower points at some point this year. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go back to the basics mm -hmm. because it's what it's about. And I don't even, I'm not going to tell you I expected to play quarters, but I definitely <laughs> am way more proud of this one than the one last okay. year for some reason. And you referenced the last time we chatted uh, a year ago, how much Chrissy Everett means to you. What was that conversation like, that reinforcement, tell, her telling you, her her place in the game, her telling you that you belong out there? Yeah, she, um, I was actually just through there now. Um, we were talking about the whole trip. You know, she's funny because she will text me always she always texts me before my first round like good luck you got this and then the more I start winning she will always text me my day off and be like hey like get your head in the game you're not finished here so she'd always be the one that will give me all like the encouragement but always keep me right. hungry for more and remind me like you're not done here like, like enjoy you your day have, but then like, tomorrow it's time to no, work like, again. almost like yeah. I hope you enjoyed yesterday yeah. but today it's like you're thinking about tomorrow already and I always love that because, I mean, it's, it's, she's right. Like, I didn't come here to just make a third round or a fourth round. And she's just, at the end of the day, like, I mean, she was very proud of me, but I just love that she always keeps my head where it should be. Right. It's, it's great. And I think it's also reminding that some of the nicest people are just killers out there <laughs> on the tennis court. Oh my, right. I yeah. mean, Jesus, like I saw some of her, like she was this like princess on court, but inside, oh my goodness, she, she would do anything to win the match. And, and, you know, when she talks to me about my tennis, it still comes out like the champion in her and how she approached the game. Mm -hmm. It's to me is just sometimes also funny the way she talks about it. There's two sides of what people are talking about. The quarterfinal run is the, is the Tamjanovic family part that some people are talking about. But we want to know about the hotel situation because I want to make sure that we have the timeline straight. You beat Krejcikova on Saturday, uh, July 2nd, and it's a great win. Everyone's feeling good. They're like, I'm on court. How are you feeling? This is great. And the first thing you say is, oh, it's great. I actually just had to switch hotels. Oh, why did you have to switch hotels? Because your father, Rako Tamjanovic, decided to uh, check you out. And, and lo and behold, this would happen, what, two more times where you had to keep extending the deadline? So it was actually the, the Friday. I played, uh, sorry, the Thursday when I won my second round. Uh, and, you know, we're having like a nice cool down. Everyone's in a good mood. And 
And my dad goes, oh, I have some bad news. And I knew as soon as he said that, I knew it because I know my dad for a very long time. And this used to happen in like challengers when I wasn't making money. And, and I mean, I would keep my mouth shut because obviously my parents are supporting me and, and they're the boss, right? Like if I have to switch hotels to, to spend less money, I'm I'm not going to complain. Right. But fast forward to what, like 10 years later, I'm in Wimbledon and I think I can believe in myself enough not to book my room until my apartment until Friday. And he goes, yeah, we, we have it until tomorrow. And I actually couldn't believe it because he's never done that before. It's always, <laughs> he's always booked it the whole first week. Right. Okay. And I'm kind of offended. Like I'm thinking, what the hell? I mean, this is like, I'm only in the third round. I would, I think if I made the fourth round, I'd be more at ease. I'd be like, you know what, dad, I get it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but I was not satisfied with this happening in a third round. So he's like, no, 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 Isla, don't worry. I'm going to figure it out. And it wasn't easy to figure out because everything's booked. London was crazy. And I didn't want to stay an hour from the courts. So he managed to, um, in the end, he managed to find a hotel that was in Putney, actually only 15 minute drive. Perfect. I mean, I probably spent four times the amount of money by getting like more rooms instead of just getting two weeks of my house. (laughs) But besides the point, um, (laughs) And then he had to extend it every time I won because he would just buy it. Like he would just get it for two more days. And then, <laughs> so literally till like I was out, yeah. we were always unsure, but I told him after that, listen, like, I don't care how you do it. I'm just telling you, I'm staying in this hotel till the end. Even if I have to stay with a stranger in the room, I'm not moving. And he was like, yep, no worries. No worries. So I, I trusted him that he would, um, he was have me stay there but the fact that I always saw him the first thing like at cool down him taking out his iPad and going on I don't even know what site he's going on to rebook it would just get like my blood boiling (laughs) even like after a good win so I was like like and then he got offended that I told the press like what do you mean I mean I just it was a whole thing that's an incredible story. Uh, just the idea that after his daughter's big Wimbledon win, he's got to do more work and he's got that letdown phase. Um, did he really say, did he really say the phrase, uh, hungry rats swim faster? Yeah. So he told me this when I, I actually got really upset on my day off before my third round, because I could tell that he was struggling to find a room and he wanted me to have something close. And he was I think also a little bit mad with how angry I was. And after finally getting it, he goes, okay, I got the hotel, but let me tell you something, Isla, hungry rats swim the fastest. And I was like, you, like, I think that was a dad lesson, like a parent, a parenting moment. And I was like, listen, I'm not a rat. I'm not hungry. I just want a room. <laughs> so he definitely did. And I've never heard that phrase in the 29 years of my life, but he's never used that on me. So I don't know where he heard that one. Must be a handball thing or something. I'm not really sure. You'll be hard-pressed to find a better play-by-play man in the sport of tennis than Mark Petchy. We recorded a podcast over the summer where we discussed many things, including the rising rivalry between Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner, and just what makes Nick Kyrgios' serve, his game, and personality so special. I know we mentioned the hard court swing. I do want to just, they're playing all over the world. There's a, there's a clay court clay court swing last week too. Uh, the, the Umag final in Croatia, Alcaraz and center. I mean, this is, 
this is going to be a rivalry down the road. I think it's a safe bet to say. And I do think that Sinner winning this tournament, they play now on all three surfaces. Sinner's beating him on grass and clay. Alcaraz has the win in hard court. But this, to me, was more Sinner good than Alcaraz bad. Totally. Yeah. I mean, Yannick hits that when you hit the ball off both sides like Yannick does, <laughs> you're going to have great wins. You're going you're gonna to yeah. be anyway. We saw it at Wimbledon. We saw it against Novak for a couple of sets. He, he, the only thing that's lacking really at the moment is experience. Yeah. You see Yannick serve, how much it's changed in the last 12 months in terms of the technique on it. He's done some great work in that department. That was always going to let him down. It wasn't going to be his attitude. Um, it's a great rivalry. It's going to be awesome for all of us. We, lo we love watching them play. He's just, he is just so solid on both sides. It's insane. And Alcaraz was, to be fair, a little hobbled, had the ankle roll, I think, of the round before. Um, yeah, but one pointer, one point in tennis. One point. He, he breaks at two love. Yeah, and was who, it uh, two or three break points there? Three break three points break in a row. Points. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how it, fast it goes. It's a, we were talking it, about yeah. that yesterday in the uh, Jack Sock Cressy match. He had break points up a set in the second, and then. 100%. 100% there. Um, no, and looking at it, I mean, Alcaraz, there's no reason to just. The, people overreact on everything in sports, but no, no worries. I couldn't there. believe it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I genuinely couldn't believe it. On one hand, you're talking about yeah. Yannick Sinner, who's nearly knocked Novak out of Wimbledon. Yeah. And then people are a bit down on Carlos, like because he lost to Yannick in the final <laughs> of Umag. I'm like, I'm like, what sort of alternative reality like, are people were living in? What would people in the social media age think about like Roger Federer's like one year run after yeah. beating when he Sampras? Lost to Lewis Horner at yeah. the French Open in 2003. He, this guy's a bum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he beats Sampras at the 2001 Wimbledon Championships yeah. and doesn't win another major. Doesn't win his first major for two years. Yeah, what's the, guy, what's the guy? What's the guy's thing? Get him on the scrap heap. Yeah. He's never going to be anything. Yeah. Uh, I, it's just so quick to judgment to, right, right, right. to be judgmental about players that are on such a fast trajectory. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's other people out there that are wasting their talent. And I'll tell you what, it's not Carlos Alcaraz. No, absolutely not. Uh, as we get into D.C., I mean, there's a lot to talk about with this city open, and, and you mentioned him earlier, Nick Kyrgios. Nick. Nick Kyrgios. He's, I mean, what he did against Tommy Paul last night was close to a virtuoso performance. Tommy Paul's playing the best tennis of his life into the top 40 on the way up, and Kyrgios just handled him with ease. And I don't know, Mark, if it's maturity, if it's just he's kind of accepted where he is, but I'm noticing that he'll still have those moments of tweeners and stuff, but he's more selective of when he does it. It's, it's kind of funny. Like he did the hot shot, but it was on Paul's serve when it wasn't a big point in the match. I feel like Nick, dare I say, is growing up a little bit. <laughs> You're allowed to say it. Uh, no question. I think we're going to see some catastrophic matches still from Nick over the course mm -hmm. of his career. Yeah. I, I think we're all going to have yeah. to accept the fact there's going to be moments where people are going to go, that felt unacceptable. But right. right now, where he is, the quality of tennis that he's put on the court in Washington after coming off the back of that final in Wimbledon, very few players have done and would have done. He has carried that momentum and the passion and the desire and the focus, and you've just had said it, the quality of tennis, take away the tweeners and all that. The way he's played in general so far in Washington has been unreal. I don't really know of anybody else currently, obviously, that red lines are served so well. The first set last night, the first set against Novak at Wimbledon, I don't know if there's anything you can do on the other side. It's just don't get broke, apparently. Yeah, exactly. you got to just yeah. kind of hold yourself. Like, we, we've said it for a number of years yeah. with Nick. Uh, and in isolation, uh, it's one of the top five serves of all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, he hasn't won majors, so how do you say that? Bottom line is, just in isolation, it's one of the best serves of all time. His toss does stay similar. You oh. can't read it. It's it's pure, and he doesn't. I mean, yeah. that, that's been his downfall in the past is the second serve. He just goes for too much, but... I mean, it was it was disgusting, and I think he's clearly the favorite in this tournament. And we're just hoping that he builds on that Wimbledon run. That's the thing is, Looks can like he it. back it up? And, it, and he's passing all the tests so far.
Over the summer, I got a chance to travel to my hometown of Cleveland to cover the WTA Tennis in the Land event that featured several of the names biggest and brightest in the week before the U.S. Open. Sophia Kennan was one of the names in the event, and I got the chance to speak with her about what it was like trying to regain her form, how her life changed after the Australian Open, and so much more. Did you feel like you were building to a result like this? I know results have kind of been hard to come by with your injury and getting just match time, and there's been some moments, but the result hasn't quite been there. Did you feel like your practice and your matches before that led to this? I mean, yeah, I'm definitely putting in the work and practice. So, you know, I'm trying my best. Hopefully it's paying off. I'm happy to have gone this win, but, um, you know, day by day, match by match. So uh, obviously my, my eyes on New York. So hopefully it can pay off even more there. But this is a good start. I feel like this is, gives me a bit of confidence, which is good. And some matches at least under my belt, hopefully. When did you decide to play in this event? And well, we're obviously loving to have you here, but <laughs> when did you decide to come here? Oh, like a few months ago, like when I was making uh, my schedule with my dad. We okay. figured out, let's try to play here, you know, as many tournaments as I can. Try to, you know, before US Open, why not have a few, hopefully, going with the intention, having matches under my belt. I know winning is ultimately the goal for everybody. It's the main reason you're in this sport. Uh, that said, the match in Canada against Sloane Stevens, did oh, you yeah. did you take it was interesting. It took like eight hours throughout the day with yes, the rain. That was a long <laughs> one. I was like a blockbuster match. Um but yeah, I mean of course uh, I felt throughout the match I was playing fine, it's just some errors which is I understood why, you know, I mean I don't have like match play rhythm, I don't have many matches obviously. But um, I felt like I was playing well, but I, I guess like my feistiness came out there. Clearly, I yeah, fought, yeah. but then of course rain delay wasn't most easiest. So I feel like that's obviously gives me time with matches. So hopefully I can adjust to those conditions. And you know, at that day, Sloan was more prepared. And of course, third set, it could have gone either way. I mean, I like to keep everyone on their toes. You start off very dramatic, so. Yeah. The fighting, though, was noticeable. Like, it would have been easy for the match to be over in straight sets. Yeah, I mean, it was 6 2 5 yeah. 1, yeah. and then 3 0 in the third. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, I tried to fight. You know, I knew I couldn't do much except fight and just push myself, which I did. And I mean this, like, totally respectfully, but there's not many players I've seen that are better at channeling their emotions. Like, tennis is such a frustrating game, it just oh, yeah. nags you so much. <laughs> You get frustrated out there, but then you raise your level. Has that always kind of been the goal? Trying to, of <laughs> yeah, course, yeah. yes. I mean, of course, there is frustration. There is frustration from my side, obviously, but trying to handle a bit better because no point to be frustrated. You're, you're taking energy on being, on being frustrated than actually playing point by point. So doing my best with yeah. that. Did you know anybody as competitive as you growing up? I mean, I feel like everyone is competitive <laughs> in this sport. Yeah. But, of course, Serena, yeah. Maria yeah. Sharapova, yeah. all the great goats in men's tennis, right. Rafa, Djokovic. Right. You just strike me as someone that coming up through the ranks, that was one of the differences that separated you from, from your era. Not obviously the goats are another class at this point. Of course, point, yeah. Not comparing myself yeah, to the goats. <laughs> but so looking at your match play and your rhythm, I mean, it's still like you're still super young on tour and everything that's changed in your life the last probably five, six years. Was it like an overnight switch when you won the Australian Open? Was that life changing moment? Of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, I felt like so much stuff changed for me, you know, expectations, I guess, pressure from the outside and from my side, expecting more from myself. So obviously it was a bit bumpy after that. And, you know, I talked to some people who have won a slam, obviously, and, you know, they said it's normal. Like it'd be shocking unless you're like the goat or your Serena who wins right. like so many slams <laughs> and yeah. everything, you know, that obviously defines why they're there. Yeah. But then, yeah, I managed to, you know, wasn't the best, but then somehow came back and then French. Right. So it was, yeah, it wasn't wasn't a one slam wonder you were newcomer of the year that year and mm -hmm. then made a final and i think only like four of the 12 recent winners have even done that so unfortunately it just it seems like it comes down to health in this sport it's about maintaining your body and knowing when to play and when not to play of course, not to yeah. overexpose yeah. 
So just kind of looking forward at like going into your schedule and what this is going to look like. You're here to play matches. You're here to get trained for the for the U.S. Open. But I know your belief system is still Grand Slam championships. You obviously believe you can do it. What's something here in Cleveland in this tournament that's going to help you accomplish that goal? I mean, match play, confidence will give me. I feel like I'm the type that if I have a few matches under my belt, I'll get confidence and then I should, you know, potentially play better throughout the match. And, of course, New York is open. You know, it's my favorite tournament, you know, obviously. But, um, <laughs> yeah. of course, like there, like the atmosphere, the vibe is really nice there. So, yeah. yeah. You've gone on record with the expectations question. Like it's just unfair other than like the all-time greats that you just said. How do you manage that? Because you have sky-high expectations, it's what got you where you were. How do you manage that with knowing that you can't realistically win every tournament? I mean, trying my best, I still, I'm quite hard on myself, even though sometimes, you know, my dad's like, it's impossible to win unless you're one of the GOATs. So, yeah. like, everyone loses. Like, every tournament, you're going to lose. You know, I mean, there's so many, you know, everyone wins, loses. But I try, you know, my best, and whenever I win, I take it. And it's a, not a celebration, yeah. obviously, unless it's a slam. Yeah. But still, it's a win, and I'm happy with it. And that belief is still sky high, hasn't faltered at all? No, no, belief has always <laughs> been there. Okay. But, of okay. course, confidence, you know, it has to build up. But it's a good start today. Also at the WTA Tennis in the Land event, I spoke with Bernarda Pera, fresh off winning the first two titles of her career, back-to-back. -back. She spoke about what those victories meant for her, how she was playing for something bigger than tennis, and what her interests were off the court. It seems like as your year has gone, and like a lot of players, it didn't happen for you overnight. It didn't happen right away. A lot of times we'll look at these interviews and say, when was the best you're playing? I think it would be laughable if I presented that now. You're clearly in a zone on the winning streak. Were there signs going into those clay titles where you thought, I'm on to something here, my game's starting to come together? Yeah, I mean, I felt good on practices. I just wasn't able to execute that uh, game in the, in the matches. So I kind of felt good but couldn't do that uh, in the matches. So, uh, And obviously I'm playing some of my best tennis uh, and clay is my favorite surface and I always played good on clay so I think it just I just started a momentum there. You strike me as somebody that's very professional like with the process and being a tennis player and the stuff you don't see on TV how do you stay dedicated to your craft when the results aren't there? It, it, it's difficult honestly um, I had my moments where I wasn't uh, kind of positive and and you know it was difficult to to go uh to practice and work out every day when you don't have the results you want and you think you deserve but um i'm, I'm glad it kind of changed and and i'm glad i i got a, a few wins and my rankings kind of showed up that first one budapest what was could you even put into looking back at it now could you even put into words like what you were feeling at that moment when you finally had match point had the trophy where you were in the draw going into that event and then ultimately holding the trophy, can you even sum it up at this point? Uh, a huge weight off my shoulder. That was when, when I won the last point. But um, from the first match, that tournament uh, in qualies from the first round, I felt good. I, I, I thought I played well and I was aggressive and I served well, which, was, which is so important for me. There's only been a handful of players, it's in Americans especially, you'd have to go back to Serena like seven years ago, that have won multiple clay court events in the same year. You did it in back-to-back -back events, back-to-back -back weeks. Was You mentioned the, the weight being lifted. Were you just playing more free at that moment? Did you think there was no pressure going into Hamburg? Like, How did you keep it going in a sport where so few can? 
No, I actually felt more pressure because I I won the tournament and I didn't want to lose in like early rounds the <laughs> next one and, and be like, oh my God, it was I was yeah. lucky <laughs> the previous week. So I kind of did feel the pressure, but I felt so good on court that like I just kept going. Would you say, I mean, you brought up something interesting. Would you say like, and I think a lot of tennis players would say this, that maybe the most pressure you feel in events are the first couple matches, like regardless of who you're playing, just you don't want to be one and done and you want to get into a rhythm? Yeah, the more matches you play at an event, the better you feel on court, the more rhythm you get. So the first couple of matches are for sure the most difficult. Is there like a secret sauce or a special part of getting into a groove? Is I know everybody winning matches, obviously, but what is it about going into the work week, staying healthy maybe? Is there certain things that you look for to kind of get into a groove like this? I mean, just, just yeah, stay healthy, um, kind of play matches and and uh for me the most important thing is to serve good to have my shoulder uh healthy and uh just get my rhythm in the matches and not to kind of get into the serious stuff but i know you were playing for something more with your former coach christian snyder who was a, a titan in the game um did, did you feel like that was kind of helping carry you in some of these moments too i thought it was very eloquent what you said after the match but Loss is tough in any aspect of life. You obviously looked like it was added motivation to play for something more. Yeah, especially playing the way I played, um, which was kind of what he wanted me mm -hmm. to do on court, to be more aggressive and to be to go more forward and uh, hit harder. That's what he wanted me to, to do on court, and that's how I felt during those two weeks, so I think that was special. Few more things here with Bernardo Pera as we are at the Tennis in the Land event after her first match win here. Um, you strike me also as somebody that doesn't necessarily fear certain opponents. You can look at some of the match results and some of the close score lines. Is, is that true to say that it's not so much the number uh, next to the person's name or how many titles they have, but just what you're capable of and what you can control on your side of the net? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I hit big and I try to st be aggressive as much as I can. So. Um, if I'm able to do that, I don't think uh, it matters who is, I mean, my opponent. Yeah. <laughs> is that like a little voice in your head where you want to be hitting big, but you kind of have to pull the reins, like it's probably a tug of war? Yeah, it is for sure, especially with my coach now. He's like, try like to control the ball more <laughs> at some like certain points. And I'm like, I just can't. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel good doing that. Well, they, I mean, they say fortune rewards the, bra rewards the brave. So I think uh. that's the right way to go, uh, for sure. Uh, just kind of looking at some of the other stuff, too. People might not necessarily know you, even though you've been around. What are some of the interests uh, that kind of get you going off the court, some things that you like to do, whether it's touristy stuff or just hobbies or passions of yours off court? Uh, I like to go to other sports. Like, I went to... Well, first time I went to a baseball game the other night. Oh. That was my first baseball game ever. Wow. Uh, so that was fun. Uh, usually I like to watch basketball. My boyfriend is a basketball player, so that's something I, I like to watch. And, uh, yeah, went to uh, a play, a theater, theater the other day, uh, yesterday actually. So just, yeah, yeah, normal stuff. So the Yankee hat was just stylish? It was you never been to a game before? No. Okay. Okay. Uh, and, and just to follow up, I, I know your boyfriend's a basketball player. If uh, you cross sports, played each other, and I guess who would be better at the other sport? Because tennis is pretty tough, regardless of how much of an athlete it is. you are. I would say I'd be better in <laughs> I basketball. I would hope you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you haven't played tennis before, it's not easy. No.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. John Wertheim is the standard bearer in our sport, in my opinion, the voice of journalism for tennis, as well as an exceptional figure covering 60 Minutes, working for Sports Illustrated. He joined Tennis Channel Insight in a few times this year, but it was his take on Serena Williams' retirement that makes the best of 2022 as he recapped her final matches at the U.S. Open. For her to go out there and perform like that, beats the number two player in the world, plays doubles, comes back for a Friday night session and plays a, a tough three set match like that. Um, in in a way, you know, I mean, again, if she she wins a twenty fourth major and finally ties Margaret Court and yeah. this this long avowed goal of hers to win twenty four majors, I mean, that would have been the ultimate Hollywood ending. Yeah, but again, I I think it's pretty fitting. I, I she kind of left the door open, right? I mean, she, she yeah, didn't say like, like it. <laughs> that's it. See you on the beach. She kind of sort of uh, you know she gave herself an out. Yeah, I almost hope she doesn't take it. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you there. Uh, I think that tennis is such a beautiful game, but it's hard to age in because you don't have yeah. teammates to rely on. You have to be so fit; it demands so much of you. And I, I do want to. I do want to focus on her comments. were evolving. I'm gonna. I'm in a different part of my life. She gave herself an out, and we'll see what happens. You've seen her kind of grow up in this sport and her evolution in front of our eyes, covering her being on the other side. What's I guess a better way to put it would be impressive and how she's evolved over time and handled all the expectations on her, John, because she's been the dominant force in women's tennis for two decades and pretty much uninterrupted, which is a run that will be hard to match if ever it will be. Yeah, I mean, she had that line that, you know, I feel for the first time since 98, I feel like there isn't a target on my back. And, you know, I mean, I think some of that is these are the stories athletes tell themselves and every athlete tries to position themselves as the underdog. But then you say, wait, 98 that's 24 that's almost a quarter century ago um you know i mean i just as a complex human being this is a complicated athlete the numbers speak for themselves i think one thing that's really nice about this story is you hear about so many athletes some of them are in town you know althea gibson who essentially you know i mean she died without any money and they named statues after her but it, it was not an easy life she had even you know Steffi Graf, we didn't know what we had till it was gone. You see this at athletes yeah. and all sorts of other sports with Serena and, and Venus as well. Very early on, I think tennis men did fences and vice versa. And in the beginning, it was it was patchy. And whether it was, you know, Indian Wells or Richard and Spy, I mean, there was definitely friction mm-hmm. the first five years or so. And then it really sort of blossomed into sort of this, this is going to sound therapy but it's kind of a love story Mm. and for the last 15 years or so there was no polarization going on i mean anybody that was sort of stuck on that narrative wasn't following tennis venus and serena became very popular among other players they took their careers seriously tennis fans absolutely fell in love with them other players i mean it really sort of blossomed into a very nice story and for all the times athletes retire and we say oh we didn't know the greatness was in front of our eyes you know bill russell i mean just you see bill russell tributes last month 
And a lot of them center on, boy, he had to go Hank Aaron. They had to go through a lot, and yeah. it was too bad they weren't celebrated. That wasn't the case here. I mean, Serena got a send-off like I've never seen, completely <laughs> well-deserved, yeah. but I think uh, it's it's really in some ways a very happy story. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think, you know, again, all credit in the world to Ayla Tamjanovic for how she mm-hmm. handled the moment, and you could see in her admiration for Serena the lasting legacy for Serena and Venus, of course, to me, is how they grew the game. I mean, you could draw the line with Tiger Woods and, and players that come from non-traditional backgrounds in sports, but she introduced tennis to people that weren't familiar and made more new tennis fans than anyone in my lifetime. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll keep running with that. I'll push yeah. back. I mean, we all hear about this, this mm-hmm. Tiger effect, and this is not yeah. meant to denigrate Tiger Woods, right, right. but I, I do not see a flood... Never mind of, of sort of young black golfers right. who are now bursting through on the PGA Tour, which mm-hmm. is obviously what we have with women's tennis. But I've been, I mean, I think some of Serena's impact, we talk about the Williams effect. I think some of that is not on the field, but it's on the crowd. I mean, yeah. the, the U.S. Open crowd, the people, even on social media, yeah. the people paying attention to tennis, it looks different than it did when they started. I've also been really struck by how many non-American players have talked about being inspired by the Williams sister. I mean, Garbini Muguruza says, I was I was a poor girl growing up in Venezuela, and my mom looked at Venus and Serena and yeah. said, if they can achieve it, so can you. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard that story before, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's very reductive, and it's very sort of, I think it's an oversimplification to say, look how many black women there are in the top 100, right. and, and Coco and Sloan Stevens, that's, right. that's great. I mean, no question they were inspired yeah. by Serena, but I think that almost sells them short, because I think there are a lot of, yeah. Players outside the U.S., not just me. Novak Djokovic's parents were pursued by loan sharks. I mean, he yeah, didn't grow yeah. up with a silver spoon. I mean, I think Serena and Venus's inspiration extends way beyond their X many women of color in the right. top 100 now. Look how much they've yeah. achieved. No, I mean, that that makes sense. I definitely think that they, they grew the game in the sense that they brought people together that wanted to play tennis that didn't really have that sort of, I guess, right. silver spoon background. Uh, and just the final note on Serena, the thing that separates her and the all-time greats, the big three in men's tennis to me, is just how they were able to reinvent themselves and almost have not just sustained runs, but almost separate runs. There was early Serena being the best player, goes through some adversity, comes back. 2015 Serena was arguably the best version ever. Um, being able to chase greatness after you've already achieved it, when it would be so easy to walk away, is what I think is inspiring. I mean, 10 grand slams after 30. That's just, that's an insane number. I'll give you one too, to to, to twin with that, which is she did that without a rival, right? I mean, (laughs) she beat all of her rivals out. Yeah. She, I mean, she, she basically smothered all her rivals. Mm -hmm. I mean, Djokovic and Federer and Nadal will say each of them made me better. Mm. And I always knew where the bar was and I always knew what I had to achieve. Serena's biggest rival was probably Margaret Court. I mean, there wasn't that player pushing her, this barometer of greatness, this Christian Martina. I mean, she did this all in many ways sort of as a, as a self-starter. The 2022 tennis season will be remembered for a lot of things, one of which will be Roger Federer's retirement from the game. Here's Pam Shriver talking about Federer's impact, how he walked away, and what he means to the sport that he carried so well. Roger makes his announcement, no more Roger Federer uh, in tennis, and a lot can be said about him, and a lot will be said about him. A 20-year career that, that spawns so much. But the announcement itself, and we heard from Roger today at his Labor Cup press conference where he talked about what his body was going through and how hard the process was for him behind the scenes. 
Did anything surprise you about the timing of the announcement, how he did it, and just ultimately him coming to this decision to give up the game? No, I'd heard some things at the U.S. Open um, that didn't sound positive as far as a successful comeback in order to play at the level that would be acceptable. Mm -hmm. The knee was just – I'd heard that. So then it becomes when do you make the announcement. It seems like Roger made the right decision to let the U.S. Open play out, right? Mm -hmm. You don't make a huge announcement in the middle of a major being played. And it was really Serena's time to – Take uh, take her vow as the greatest female player of all time, and so I think its timing was really good. I think also for him to play his last match at an event that he helped start, mm-hmm. surrounded by his main rivals, um, yeah. you know, and a lot of love in that event, um, a lot of great spirit. So I, I think it really is the right send off. Um, and I thought the way he did it with the stationary, the two page <laughs> mm-hmm. note. Maybe it was four page. I don't know. But just I was struck by the stationery and then also just his voice and him reading the letter. I yeah. thought it was a really special way. I like the way Serena did it, too, and Serena's way with the Vogue announcement. But I thought Roger's way of doing it, too, was just like Roger. Yeah, I, I think part of his legacy, and we can kind of get into the bigger picture stuff, but it's inspiring like Serena, like a Tiger Woods, like these iconic athletes is inspiring that next generation to kind of do it and do it in a creative way. I mean, his the way he played, I think, is what we keep coming back to. Mm-hmm. There is a real beauty in just the sport of tennis, but there was something about how he played, like the gracefulness out there in such a graceful sport that I think I, I think that's what's going to be standing the test of time is just how he played the game. Yes, yes, and how he conducted himself on and off the court and all the different languages and all the patience he had mm-hmm. for the media. You know, he's just a true professional in every way. Um, it's funny, I bought uh, Christopher Cleary's book, The Master, a while ago, and it just took me a while to get to it, but the day that Roger announced mm-hmm. his retirement, I'm like, okay, this is a good day to pick up the book. So yeah. I started to read the book, and last night I was, I'm still in the early phases, I kind of, I, I don't read a lot in any one sitting, but um, just going through and realizing the impact that some of his early coaches had, especially Peter Carter from yeah. Australia, and how Peter settled from Adelaide, uh, to Basel, it was like just ha- it just happened to be. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that have to work right for a career like this to happen. It was interesting listening to reading how Darren Cahill recollected such close friend and a peer of Peter Carter, and of course Darren, probably the greatest coach of all time, the way his career is going. But just how Peter played a lot like Roger, just not as good, not as fast, but that Roger was able to pick up the technique and his elegance and some of his, um, I think, gracefulness from Peter Carter. Yeah, and it is a great lesson, especially for some of the younger fans that might not know the origin story or weren't around, that it wasn't like he was always this way. Like, he evolved. He had erraticness. He was had a temper. He'll be the first to admit it. But that he fine-tuned it and reached his full potential. Uh, it's, an, it's an inspiring story, and... and there's a lot to, that goes into Roger, but the consistency is just startling. Like, you could run through the numbers, and I know he's just so much more than stats, but that run of, like, 18 out of 19 major finals and just 237 straight weeks at number one, there's something about staying at the top that I really think distinguishes the, the all-time greats from whatever that next tier is, the greatest of all time. Well, and, and both Serena and Roger, the oldest number ones in their mm-hmm. respective ATP and WTA, 
in their mid to late 30s was were able to get back to number one. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, Novak has a chance to maybe mm-hmm. break that if he can um, you know, play the kind of tennis that Novak played right. before COVID. But, you know, I want to go back to something else I think is really important. I want to stress that I loved about Federer's pathway was that he was a dual sport. He, he played a lot of different sports, especially soccer. Yeah. And it was at the age of 12 yeah. that he decided to go single focus. And I think that's really a great message for parents. I mean, even even you could probably do it a little bit later and still be exceptionally yeah. good at a sport and that it really helps prevent burnout. Um, so I, I really related to and appreciated that part of his story. I don't know that there will be an athlete in tennis that I'll see in a long time that has his popularity, his adoration universally. Like there's home countries and, and the support that players get, but he was, you know, appreciated and loved everywhere he went. And I don't know that we'll get that for a very long time. You know, it's interesting because you think about the role that Switzerland may have played in that. Mm. Switzerland's always <laughs> been the neutral country, yeah, right? Yeah. And everybody, I think that that helped him get off to a good start, a neutral start. Mm-hmm. And then obviously his personality, his game, the rest of how he conducted himself. But um, I don't I don't know <laughs> if we would have seen that same uh, if it had been, a, um, if he'd come from a different country. That, that's certainly a possibility. I think the humility you mentioned played a big part in it. And handling losses is something that's tough at any level, especially the elite level. He's got, you know, he's got all the accolades, but it's, Unfortunate, however you want to put it, that some of the matches we remember most are the ones he lost. And, I mean, I could just say if I was in those shoes, I don't know that I would have been able to handle it as gracefully, having to stand up there in the runner-up circle so many times with his rivals, matches he could have won, and yet he handled it about as gracefully as you could. Well, and maybe um, when Roger was handling those moments, and obviously the one that I think everyone thinks about the most was... um, the loss in the finals to Djokovic in 2019 when he mm-hmm. had the two match points, 12-all match tiebreak. Um, but when you think about how, say, Roger would have looked at Andy Roddick, um, having seen Andy have to handle the toughest of losses for Andy on that same court in the finals, I think um, yeah, I think that's a sign of a great champion is to, to win with grace, lose mm-hmm. with grace. And, of course, you walk on to center court with Kipling's quote right above where you walk out there to kind of remind you to try and do that. The term tennis lifer can mean many things, but John Lloyd encompasses all of them. He's played the game at a high level, worked in broadcasting for many years, and coached for his country and for world team tennis. Here's John Lloyd on Tennis Channel Inside In discussing why he decided to write an autobiography called Dear John, his career playing against the very best in tennis history, his friendship with Bjorn Borg, and what it was like coaching that England Davis Cup team and dealing with Andy Murray. It's John Lloyd on Tennis Channel Inside In. In this book, in Dear John, what can we expect to learn about you know the the battles and some of the characters on the tennis tour that you were privileged enough to play against? Well, I I, I think you know I, I people always one of the things that people always ask me whenever I'm at cocktail parties, whatever they always ask, well, who was you know who was what was it like playing Connors, Borg, and McEnroe? They were my three mega stars that yeah. were in my era, yeah. uh, and and you know how did you do against them, and what were they like? So I had to do a chapter yeah. on those three. You got Bjorn to write the forward to the book. I, I got Bjorn to write the forward, and Bjorn is uh, he's just a gem of a person. I mean, he's the most generous guy. 
uh, that, you know, I mean, if you, if we, we saw him today and there were 20 people and he didn't even know them and we went out for dinner, he'd pick up the tab. He's just wow. that sort of guy, uh, very generous with his time. And, and I wrote a few stories about him because he was just, uh, he was a funny guy. One of the stories, actually, which I always thought was amusing was in in Pacific Palisades, where I used to live here in, in Los yeah. Angeles. And, and um, you know, I was married at the time and, and my wife, Deborah, and, and he came to stay at, at my house with his girlfriend at the time. And uh, I said to Bjorn one day, Deborah and I are just going to go to the park, Palisades Park, to hit some tennis balls, so I'll see you later. And he said, oh, okay. And so we're playing at the park, and all of a sudden, about 20 minutes later, I see him walking down the hill with his girlfriend, and they've got tennis rackets, and <laughs> he comes on the court and says, you know, can we play? And I said, sure. And so I'm watching people yeah. sort of walking down the hill, and they take a sort of look, and they look, and they kind of take a double take, and they're going, yeah. I can see them saying, is that? No, and then they walk off, and wow. they can't do it. And then uh, we started to play a set, and we it was like two one, and my ex wife was about to serve, and I'm at the net, Bjorn's about to receive, and I'm waiting for the serve. I'm waiting for the serve, and I'm thinking, what the heck? And then Bjorn starts laughing. I think, what the heck's going? So I turn around, and I look at my wife, and she she can't release the ball out of her hand to serve. And I said, what the hell's wrong? And she goes. I just realised I'm serving to Beyond Ball, <laughs> <laughs> and she couldn't serve. That's so great. it was just that was a that was a sort of a Beyond Ball. He was a yeah. was this charismatic figure that right. you know started, in my opinion, one of the great tennis booms. Really, mm -hmm. he was. And when you look back at it, when you think about it, he started that teeny bopper yeah. at, at Wimbledon. And when you think about it, in those days there were no no cell phones, right. no computers, no iPads, and yet. Somehow this word spread about this sort of Swedish sort of tennis god that was playing. I mean, one of the most famous athletes in the world. Of, of, all time. Yeah, of all time. And all of a sudden it spread. And then every day after that he played, there were these screaming young girls. Yeah. And word wasn't getting out nowadays. It would have been easy. You could have mm -hmm. Facebook and you yeah. would have. But it was going out by the newspapers. But word just spread about this guy. And he, I think he was one of the guys that was very responsible really for this tennis boom that happened I was very lucky mm -hmm. to be in that period and in fact actually at Wimbledon next year uh, the the BBC are coming out with a documentary it's called um, oh, wow. Wimbledon uh, the tennis gods or something like that the gods of the gods of Wimbledon the gods of tennis yeah. uh, and they asked me to be in it uh, and I did a uh, couple of hours with them not that I was uh, you know a, 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 in that year that anywhere near as good as those guys but I was a part of that yeah. and they obviously wanted some stories that were in that era right. and so I was very lucky to be in you know I, I see the era now obviously with Nadal uh, Federer yeah. and and, and uh, Djokovic and and you go oh what an era but my era was pretty special too so in addition to commentary I know you've coached a lot there's yeah. been a lot of team like the Davis Cup for Great Britain World Team Tennis also work with some players how did you enjoy you know, the coaching side of things. Is that something that, you know, you found that you enjoyed as much as some of the other hobbies and activities you got into, or was that just something to kind of stay connected in the game? Well, I, I, I do like coaching. I'm not, I, I've never, never been one that went out on the tour for that, mm -hmm. that, that many times. I actually had a few decent offers, but after a while it was just, you know, it, was a, it became a grind. I think you're, you're with a, a much younger player, and, and these days they've got these entourages around them and, you know, they want you to not to hang out with other coaches and all this kind of nonsense. Yeah. And it's all a bit, my day that that stuff didn't happen. Now it's a, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not really for me now. I, li I liked more, bit, you know, with, with World Team Tennis particularly. Davis Cup being, I was the coach when my brother was captain and then I moved into the captaincy. Mm. 
it was a great honour. But did I enjoy it? Well, I enjoyed when we won the matches, but when we <laughs> lost them, I didn't enjoy it. But but um, yeah. I found that difficult to a certain extent because, you know, when you're a Davis Cup captain, you know, again, there's some people that play, ex-people that players that do it, they've got strong egos. And it, it, yeah. and it becomes difficult because you've got to remember that the players that you're on the court with, right. they've got regular coaches for 40 weeks a year. So... What are you going to do? Tell them that they're not hitting their forehand right or their back? You're not going to do that. It's yeah. more of a mental thing. And it can be difficult when you've got to deal with players that were better than you uh, and have strong egos. I'll give you an example that I write about in the book with Andy Murray. Now, Andy Murray, uh, who I've known for years, as we all know, Andy uh, can tend to get a little bit upset at his coaches, to put so it mildly. That's fair to say. Uh, fair to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself when I got the job and when he was coming up, and I was thinking, oh, no, I'm going to be sitting there for four hours and I'm going to have this young kid, <laughs> you know, insulting me, and I can't go anywhere. If I was a, a normal coach and, yeah. he, and he said, I'd walk off, I'd say, bye-bye. Yeah. I can't, it's Davis Cup captain, there's millions of people. <laughs> so I'm thinking, how am I going to get out of this? So I actually... I don't do that many smart things in my life, but this one was a smart thing. I, at the time, he was being coached by Brad Gilbert, who's, yeah. uh, you know, certainly knows how to chat and he's, he's never lost for words, that's for sure. Yeah. So I, I went up to Brad and I said, look, you know, I'm going to be doing Andy's matches and, uh, you know, I don't want to suddenly jump in and say something and, you know, because he's obviously a better player than me and you're his coach. He said, oh, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll supply you with the notes and, and all that stuff. Perfect great yeah so you know andy's playing yeah. and it gets in a stressful situation he's starting to get and i see him getting Andy. he's looking over at me and he's about to say you know you're useless get off the court or something <laughs> and i'm thinking oh my god what do i do so i turn around to brad and brad writes something and it comes it to me and so it gives it to me and then andy walks up the changeover and i said andy you know you're not coming in the net enough and i can see he's about to blast me and i go he said that <laughs> and i turn around and pointed at brad and so then he abused Brad. So I got out of that oh, one beautifully. That's great. So that's, that was, so that plain was, telephone on there. Hey, it works out. you got to do that. It doesn't get much more bigger in the world of tennis and broadcasting than Jim Courier. The American Tennis Hall of Famer, won four majors, was the number one player in the world and has been a staple of Tennis Channel's outstanding coverage for a long time. I had the privilege of talking to him in person in our Santa Monica studios, discussing a wide range of things as the 2022 season reached a close. In these clips, Courier discusses Alcaraz reaching number one, Nadal, Djokovic, and what's next for the great sport of tennis. It's Jim Courier on the Best of Tennis Channel Inside In 2022. Do you put him in a different category? And, and I'm interested in your take on this, having lived it. He seems like someone that thrives on just being on the court. Like, it's not so much about the training. It's not even, I mean, he practices so hard, but he loves matches. And match mm -hmm. play to him maybe holds more weight than the average pro tennis player. Yeah, look, I think that because he has always had a lot of, at least be spoken about, a lot mm -hmm. of open doubts mm -hmm. about his game and having to prove it day in and day out, I'm not surprised that this is his yeah. approach. Someone like Federer had so much innate belief in his game that he could just turn it on when he came back after a break and not really worry yeah. about it and stress about it, but... Rafa tends to stress over many, many things in between points. Right. And overall, right. there's a macro stress there, too, which, um, you know, I think you see play out when he's on a, a little bit of a bad patch right now. He needs something to turn the corner. And, and that will happen, I'm sure, at yeah. some point. But it hasn't happened yet this fall. Yeah, I don't want to speculate on anything. And we've seen this happen before. What's wrong with Rafa? And then he just rebounds and wins a couple of slams and wins all the clay court tournaments. But... We know health is, is fragile, and Federer is a great example. 
was going, was rolling along, rolling along fine. Wimbledon final in 19, 2020 Aussie semi. And then the body broke down and that was pretty much it. So that's what makes me a little worrisome. Listen, we've been lucky to have yeah. Rafa as long as we've had him. And I hope we'll have him for a, a much longer time. But uh, my feeling generally is just gratitude that he's been able to endure mm-hmm. because his game is so physical. And I was among the leaders of people who didn't think he'd play out of his 20s because of the physicality, and I'm so pleased that he's been able to, that we've been yeah. able to witness his greatness for so long. Get a couple predictions right, though. So you might, might, might have missed that one, but the Alcaraz winning a teen slam, yeah. that was, you know. <laughs> that, one, that was a good one. Do you, I mean, are you as impressed as I am in the sense that it's kind of the underrated part of Djokovic, all the accolades, all the brilliance. He's turned himself into one of the best servers that the tour has, and that, you know, wasn't the case when he first came. That was his weakness, and now he's smart, he's aggressive, it's federal-like where he disguises it, and Every big point, it seems like he comes up with the goods. Yeah, we witnessed him struggle early in his career with a, a, a different service motion than he has right, right now. He had to adapt a different service motion momentarily when he had the elbow problem. But he's come back to his, his good service motion now. And, and what I'm also really excited about for him and for us as fans is he's starting to hit the kick serve again, which had disappeared after the elbow surgery. So that's another element, another part of his arsenal that he can bring in and get people off of the court and the ad court where he had been largely just hitting more body serves and T slice serves seemingly to protect his elbow. So he seems like he has all of his options again. And, you know, his 35 year old body (laughs) is not the average 35 year old body. And, and uh, I, I could easily see him playing for, you know, Tom Brady like (laughs) years. It's scary to think, but it doesn't look like if he's lost anything, it hasn't been much, and he's adding stuff too. And and did you ever have a a moment in your career where you had time off where, I mean, he's saying like, this is great. I get to train more. I get to work on new wrinkles to my game. Was that something that, you know, you ever experienced and were able to kind of add to? No, I mean, I never had a situation like his. I'm trying to think of anyone who had where you actually have to take time off and you're not injured. Uh That's a really unique scenario, and uh, I never experienced that, and we played a a pretty full schedule um, Mm -hmm. back in the 90s. We we tended to play more tournaments than they play these days and more exhibitions, so it it seemed like it was, you know, you're on on the wheel all the time. Um, You know, in hindsight, it would have been great to be able to take a – you know, to schedule a little bit more like a Federer showed us how to do, and then Novak has mm-hmm. done when he's been in control of his For schedule, sure. where they they'll take month blocks off and give themselves a chance to hit the reset button. My my generation mm-hmm. of players didn't do that. Well, his first ATP Finals in 07, he lost in the first match. In 08, he actually won it. It was the Masters Cup then, but he lost his first match. That's it. Every first match he's won from 09 on. Is it comfort in the surface? Is the round robin format? I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit of everything, but. In your estimation, why is he just so comfortable and dominant in this setting, in this tournament? Well, start with his greatness. Yeah. Then you move to the conditions, the lower bouncing court. That that hurts Rafa. It doesn't hurt Novak one bit. He he's very comfortable taking the ball at you know waist level or lower, and his game doesn't suffer at all. Um, the record of winning those first-round matches, normally he's been a top-three seed, so that means he's playing someone kind of sixth or six through eight or yeah. something like that. So it's it's a little bit of a, of a, a mismatch ranking-wise, right. but they're great players. <laughs> These are top-eight yeah. players. It's yeah. not like they're, they're giveaway matches. So I think it's just a testament to his brilliance more than anything else. Role number one, it was clinched with Nadal's loss and Roots win. It's going to be Carlos Alcraz, the youngest ATP. Role number one, year-end of all time. 
remarkable stuff. And I, and I mentioned that you had called that you think this guy's going to be, you know, a, a number one, a slam winner as a teen and the first since Rafa to do it. What did you see early on? I mean, I know he's grown leaps and bounds, but what was it about your first prognosis of his game that really got you hooked? Well, it really came into to real vision during the Indian Wells Miami swing this year. That's when his game took a big leap forward and, and we put it under a microscope on tennis channel. We covered all of his matches practically and we couldn't find weakness. Mm. You know, the only weakness was a lack of experience and possibly shot selection, maybe an overuse of drop shots on pressure points that was starting to become predictable. But you could see that the guy had some of the best wheels in the sport. <laughs> he did not lack for power anywhere, including serve for guys six feet tall, which is below tour average from a height standpoint. Hard to hit serves with that much power and get him in all the time. He hits at 135 if mm. he wants to. So you, you look at... Well, how do you attack? What are What's a strategy against an Alcaraz? And you realize it's going to require something special because he can beat you on defense and on offense. Yeah. And those are the qualities that, that the big four, especially the big three, have been bringing to the table with so much success for so long. And now he had it earlier than any of those guys did. The way he won that U.S. Open and got the number one ranking also stood out to me. It wasn't just a coronation. It wasn't just breezing through the draw and things opening up. He went five sets, three in a row, and then four in the final. So to fight to do it, I think actually is going to hold more weight. He knows he's battle-tested. Yeah, how about the late nights, early mornings? He was finishing at like 2.30 in the morning, which means you're not getting to bed probably until 5 or 6. That's a lot to ask for, yeah. for anyone, let alone a young player who's inexperienced and might be burning energy, right. nervous energy with, with what's on tap. He showed us in Madrid this year that he could back it up physical matches when he yeah. beat Nadal Djokovic in, in Zverev three yeah. in a row and some pretty physical encounters in the quarters and the semis and ran away in the final. We thought he'd be yeah. tired, and he wasn't. He was fresh. So he's got the reserves. He's, he's, got, he's done, done the work, and yeah. it all came together for him in New York. So you're one of the few people on earth that I could ask this question to, but you got to number one at 21 years old, I think. Mm-hmm. Alcaraz is 19. How did it change for you? Yours was, I guess, February. His was later in the year. Yep. But how did it change your life? One thing, like the outside stuff, but also your role on tour, having that target, like walking into the locker room, I'm the guy now. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I wouldn't say there's a huge uh, difference between one and four as far as having a target. Everyone mm-hmm. in that kind of class of the rankings is going to have a target on their back every match they play is a chance for someone to make a name for themselves if they haven't already so that you have to be ready for someone to bring their best every time mm-hmm. but on the flip side you're also carrying the confidence of all the matches you've won that got you there yeah. and you know that if you hold the line and play sort of normal tennis someone's gonna have to do something special to beat you but it happens yeah. um, the one thing that I would say I I think is different for Alcaraz than it was for me I didn't ever expect to get to number one. I certainly worked for it and I got there and I earned it and and I loved being there for the period of time that I was able to hang on to it. Alcaraz is one of those players who has been groomed for it and has had Mm -hmm. the the ability that just passes the eye test of this guy's likely to get to number one at some point. And he had a team from the age of 15 that he's been working with that has been building him up for these moments. And I'm sure they've come sooner than they all expected. But getting there, I don't think, was an unexpected outcome for them. And I think that will probably serve them very well as they, you know, move through a new landscape off the court. Taylor Townsend first appeared on Tennis Channel Inside In in 2021, fresh off becoming a mother and starting the slow process to become a top tennis professional yet again. 
when that time she's reached the U.S. Open doubles final with Katie McNally as her partner and represented Team USA in the Billie Jean King Cup. She was back again to recap an incredibly successful 2022 season and what it was like interacting with some celebrities as well. When you look back at that U.S. Open run and that final, is it tough to think about because the match was winnable? Or do you, at this point, kind of 20,000 feet, do you kind of view it more with perspective of it was an improbable and incredible run to be a major finalist? Well, that's how I looked at it, you know, in the moment. I mean, of course, I was pissed um, because I could taste it. I think me and Katie could both taste it. But, um, you know, we played against a very experienced team who's been there before time and time and time again that was Katie like our first time in that situation so I had to I had to allow grace where grace could be given and then be tough where you know I should have been tough um which was on myself and feeling as though like asking like what I could have done more what could I have done better like in in that regard and I took that criticism and then assessed it with my coach and you know moved on from there just said hey like okay We've got a couple of more tournaments to play, but being able to cap it as a whole, you know, not looking at the result itself because not too shabby to be a Grand Slam doubles uh, finalist. Like I've never been that far in a Grand Slam in singles or doubles. So it's an accomplishment and it's another, you know, box to tick. And the next one is to have the winner's trophy. And I know that I can do it. So, um, you know, it, it hurt at the time, it stung, but I was in good spirits and I had a great time after the final, went out, hung out with some friends and really enjoyed myself because I knew that I accomplished something right. amazing. And, um, you know, outside of Serena, I, there have been no other women, I don't think, that have made Grand Slam finals post-baby. Um, so whether singles, you know, maybe doubles players, but I'm not really sure after to look at the statistic but i know that i was able to add myself into that into that mix and i ultimately i just gave myself a great pat on the back but i knew my season wasn't over so i wasn't too relaxed but i took what i learned moved forward and you know applied that feeling and that confidence that i had uh one other thing i do want to mention too i want to hear the other behind the scenes story now that you're teaching tennis to celebrities what was it like teaching Cardi B and Normani tennis? Uh, it, it wasn't pretty, but I think you showed your patience <laughs> in there. You're very patient, more patient than most people would be. Yeah, I was a little bit nervous about that because I'm like, I don't know if you've watched Keen Peel, but like Coach <laughs> Hines, he's like, I'm going to break this in your face. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's usually how I am. Like, I'm like, I'm the most like impatient person, like. I'm just not good, especially when it comes to tennis, because in my mind, I feel like it's so easy and it's like very simple. And then when I realize like how I'm breaking it down, I'm like, okay, this is not, you're not doing a good job. (laughs) And so I had to ask myself, okay, before I went out there, it's like, okay, how are you going to like, how would you explain this to like a third grader? And so I broke it down in my mind. I was like, okay, it's like, I'm going to just a couple of principles on each thing. Um, But it was really funny. Like they were both like so sweet had a great time um cardi was everything that i thought she was gonna be she was hilarious but she was also like surprisingly like so unfit and i was just like i thought that like you have to train and have like lung control and you know air control when you're like performing and dancing and all this stuff and she was just like 
oh, I'm tired. I need a break. I need some water. She went and laid down on the bench, like actually laid down. And it was just so funny because I, I timed them to like pick up balls and stuff. So, you know, it was just kind of <laughs> yeah. eye opening as well, how it's just like things that we do that are normal, aren't really normal for everyone else, even though the other people right. are maybe someone that's extra extraordinary. My normal isn't other people's normal. And that kind of was like, you know, that right. was kind of the lesson I took from it. But I had a great time. It was so amazing to meet them. Got a new grunt, got a new pose, yeah. got a new speech, you know, when I holding up a trophy. So, you know, they they equipped me for the right things. I just have to bring it out at the right time. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you were going to copy anything from Cardi B, like the, you know, those giant blue nails she was wearing, if you were going to incorporate that, or maybe the serve where I'd never seen that before, where you just go to a backhand <laughs> midair. So maybe you yeah. can take that. Maybe I'm, I like volleyball kind of, um, but yeah, I mean the nails I'm, I'm treading there, you know, I'm a nails girl. I always have my nails done, but not like that. Cause she literally scratched, like she, she like cut herself while we were playing, like actually like drew blood. So wow. yeah, maybe not that, but you know, something along those lines. Uh, I, I will end with this. You've always admitted you set high goals for yourself. So what are the goals for Taylor Townsend in 2023? 2023 goals i'm setting it i'm setting the bar very high i just want i'm not going to give you specifics because i like to keep that stuff to my chest okay but you will see me at the top of the game that's all i'm gonna say love it love it so yeah that's that's can we get like a hobby or something you know like an off-court maybe goal (laughs) a hobby um I'm going to learn how to knit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a good one. That'd be breaking no. news. Oh my God. No, I'm, um, honestly, I'm, I'm trying to figure that stuff out. Like, you know, I'm, I'm having to re-identify like what my, mm-hmm. re-figure out like what my identity is and what I enjoy doing. Like when I have free time, because my free time is so like, it's so limited mm-hmm. and especially with traveling, like I just try to spend as much time with my son as I can. And like, when I get back from on the road. So, but it's really difficult. You got to kind of balance that giving and the energy you put out and making sure that you're putting something back in. So that's kind of like my next evolution. Thank you for that. So now I'm going to look into what can I do for me? We're going to get back to that. And I'm probably going to have knit or crochet yarn with me at the next tournament. And if you see me with it, yeah. I'll make you something. If I see you <laughs> knitting at a changeover, it's like major final five, four in the third set, you know, tensions are rising and you're just knitting. I'll know you have a new hobby. I'm not sure. You, I'll know where the match you know will go, but real. I'll, know, I'll know it's a real commitment to the hobby. I'm not sure. You'll it win, could but. be like, it could be like a Zen thing. You yeah. Know. And we finished the 2022 best of tennis channel inside in episode with USA Billie Jean King cup captain, Kathy Rinaldi. Kathy discusses what it was like to play matchmaker between the successful doubles team of Taylor Townsend and Katie McNally and what she gets out of coaching the next generation of American women. I do have to talk about your other role in the game in the last couple of years, and that's been like tennis matchmaker. A couple weeks ago, I had Taylor Townsend on the show, and I just asked her, how did you become partners with Katie McNally? And she's like, well, Kathy Rinaldi just reached out to me and said, hey, these players need partners. And little did I know, I'm talking now to uh, the creator of a U.S. Open finals team. But in all seriousness, is that something you like to do to just 
kind of I have make been these, known to yeah. be matchmaker uh, off the court as well, but we oh. won't talk about those because okay. I've, I've, had some, I've had some flops. <laughs> okay, yeah, so it's not all home runs. Got it. No, but I, yeah, you know, it was funny because um, I just thought, wow, I, ta- I talked to Tom like, hey, you need to reach out to Katie. And I just thought, wow, that would be a really, a really great team and both incredible young ladies. I mean, just um, both really love tennis and so much personality. So, and then there they are in the finals of the U.S. Open, which was so exciting for me to watch both of them because I worked with both of them and had the opportunity to work with them when they were younger and take them on trips. And, you know, Taylor and I worked closely together and she uh, was on the junior Right. Billie Jean King Cup captain, so was Katie. So it was just a lot of fun. There was a Fed Cup tie, a Billie Jean King Cup tie in uh, Asheville this year. And a good friend of the show, uh, Blair Henley, was kind of taking some video backstage. And we're like, oh, USA won. This is hey, great. backstage. <laughs> what happens at Billie yeah. Jean King Cup captain? At Billie Jean King Cup usually stays at there was uh, There were some champagne bottles. I think House of Pain Jump Around was coming on. The players were excited. And then the captain was excited. There, here comes <laughs> Kathy Rinaldi breaking it down. So if oh, you could, comment on, if you could come, comment on the Don't dance moves. Don't look at my dance saw. moves, whatever no, uh, it's fun though. And, and I, I do want to kind of bring it together with what do you, you know, how, how does this younger generation, these, these younger crop of girls, they kind of reinvigorate you and kind of give you energy. What are you learning from oh, them? Oh, absolutely. I, I, listen, there's no doubt about it. I'm getting more out of this than, than, yeah. than, the, than I can give them. That's for sure. Uh, they give me so much, um, in return they're just a joy to be around. They really are. And, you know, whether we're doing a TikTok or we're going to escape the room. Um, I think we had an egg hunt there mm. in uh, mm. Asheville because it was right around Easter. So I had an Easter egg hunt. Boy, were they competitive. <laughs> um, you know, I just, you know, we just have a lot of fun. We try to, we try to do um, some team activities and just really have fun together. All right. Dance moves are going to be off limits for now, but there might be a video <laughs> out there online because that always stays forever. Oh. Thanks, Blair. (laughs) Kathy Rinaldi, this has been a blast. The last question, have you thought about an end date at all? Do you think you're going to stay involved in the game for an indefinite amount of time? You've given back a lot more and it's been, you know, a long, it's been longer than your pro playing career now. So how, how much longer do you see yourself uh, being involved in the game? Well, um, wow. I haven't been asked that. I haven't even thought that. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't plan to stay in here as long as I can make it a positive impact on American tennis, but our sport in general and um, pl- our players' lives. I mean, I think it's just, I can't put into words how much I enjoy it. Um, I, you know, haven't really thought about an end game. Um, I think it's always going to be in my life in one way or another. And I hope so. Um, like I said, I don't take this job or what I'm doing for granted. Um, each and every day, I try to prove myself, and um, and I just thoroughly love it. So um, if if I don't, then I wouldn't be doing it. But I do. I and um, I'm very thankful to my parents who introduced me to this sport at such a young age, and I'm very fortunate to everybody around me to give me the opportunities that I've had. Thank you for listening to Tennis Channel Inside and its Best Of episode for 2022. 
It's been an honor talking to all these tremendously talented people about the game we all know and love. You can catch Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcasts, and it's available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks again to everybody who made this show what it was, and everybody out there that listened to just one episode or became hooked. My name is Mitch Michaels, the host of Tennis Channel Inside In, and I thank you for listening and wish each and every one of you a wonderful holiday season. We'll see you next week for the start of the 2023 tennis season.